This week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, at this point in time in my life, if you said, okay, what's your purpose in life? It would be actually to be additive to other people's lives. It would be to professionally push the limits of ignorance so that we get more knowledge. Uh, it would be to reduce human suffering. And it, the simplest thing, it would be uh, to be kind. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Welcome to this special edition of Backtable, Legends in Urology. It's a great pleasure to have Professor Ralph Clayman here as our guest. The old adage that no introduction is needed is certainly true, so we'll skip right to the beginning. Dr. Clayman, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Manoj. My pleasure. When we start at the beginning, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your parents. Interesting. So my father is a dermatologist. He went to medical school in, uh, in Zurich due to the Jewish quotas largely. Went into World War II, stationed at the Philippines, captured, spent three and a half years as a Japanese prisoner of war. Then came back to the States and met my mom. Very quiet, understated individual who had very, very, very high standards. So achieving excellence or praise, if you will, from him was extremely um, challenging and rare. On the other hand, my mother, who was a nurse, they met when he was actually in a hospital after World War II, getting over TB, I believe. Anything you did was fine. So she was a definition of unconditional love. So you had this wonderful situation that I think allows for the development of overachievers. On the one hand, you have a person that anything you do is fabulous and who truly believes that you can do anything that you would like to do. Then on the other hand, you have a person who, if it isn't absolutely the best, it's just not acceptable. So that was the environment I grew up in, which was a great environment as far as I was concerned, along with my two younger brothers. I think uh, all three of us wound up being to a large extent overachievers. But that was my upbringing in uh, central Jersey. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey and went to public school throughout. And your two younger brothers, what path did they follow, Ralph? Well, there was only one path in our family, and that was to become a physician. It was made very clear to me as the oldest that you could be anything you wanted to be, but there was nothing better than being a doc. That's because my mom's twin sister was a nurse. Her other two sisters were nurses. Her father was a doc. So I obviously became a doc. That imprinting, if you will, continued with my brother, Mike, who also became a doc, also graduated from UCSD, and then uh, decided he wanted to go a different path after he got his MD and satisfied my parents, if you will, and then subsequently went on to become head of worldwide regulatory at Eli Lilly and then started his own uh, company, Flexion, and has developed a wonderful drug to treat knee arthritis. Very successful, and actually the company just was bought out, I think, about a year ago, year or two ago. My other brother, the imprinting wore off on him, and he decided to stop being pre-med, I believe probably in his junior year at Tufts. And so uh, he became a lawyer and did labor law for many years uh, out of Washington, D.C. Wonderful. And I was going to ask you how you found your path to medicine, but I think you've already articulated for that. For that. <laughs> there was only one path, and it was lined with very, very, very high walls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Well, Ralph, perseverance, fortitude, and striving for excellence, I certainly see a lot of your father in yourself. Well, I appreciate that. And unconditional love. Do you feel like you're, it's possible for one individual to balance both of those things, or do you really need a team of people to set the right environment for growth and success? I don't know how you can be, let's say, a martinet on the one hand, and then all of a sudden provide unconditional love. I don't know how those two things would come together. So that would be a really, really, really unusual person in my estimation, a very, 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 very rare individual. But the upbringing and the time with my mom was just so positive that whatever you wanted to do, you were going to do. There was no question in her mind. And I can remember my senior year of college, I wanted to play, I wanted to start playing football. I was not a very good football player, but I loved football. And at Grinnell, you could do that. And I can remember before the start of my senior year, because I hadn't played at all during, really never got any time uh, during a game, if you will, during my, certainly not during my freshman and absolutely not during my sophomore or junior year. And so I was going back and to Grinnell for my senior year, and I'd worked out and trained and everything else. And I was walking with her, and I said, well, my mom's name was Roz. And so I said, Roz, uh, do you think I'll start this year? She said, absolutely. Absolutely, you'll start. I went, wow. And then something went off in the back of my head, and I went, Roz, what does it mean to start? She looked at me and said, I don't know, but whatever it is, I'm sure you'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> now, sure enough, as things worked out, I went back to Grinnell, and I was definitely the third string guard during my senior year. But by homecoming, unfortunately for them, but fortunately for me, the first string guard was injured after the first game and out for the season. The second string guard got injured about the second or third game, and all of a sudden I was starting at homecoming. <laughs> so she was right. Well, life has a strange way of putting us in the right position. I pictured you as the quarterback, so the guard comes as a surprise. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I was uh, small and slow. <laughs> If we were to ask your mom what you were like as a child, what would she say? Oh, she'd tell you that I was impossible. Couldn't sit still, couldn't keep my mouth shut, fidgeting all the time, hyperactive, definitely ADD. I mean, today I would have been drugged out of my existence. But back then they weren't doing that. And so they tolerated me. And how might that compare to what your former fellows might say of you? Oh, I don't think they'd say I'm ADD. No, I don't <laughs> I think they would not. either. <laughs> But I think some of the enthusiasm and passion and the uh, resistance to sitting still, that would probably characterize many of their impressions. I would hope so. I mean, as I say, we, we challenge the status quo every day. And if we finish and the status quo hasn't changed, we've wasted a day and that's a sin. What is your purpose in life and how do you find it? You know, at this point in time in my life, if you said, okay, what's your purpose in life? It would be actually to be additive to other people's lives. It would be to professionally push the limits of ignorance so that we get more knowledge. Uh, it would be to reduce human suffering. And it, the simplest thing, it would be uh, to be kind. Tell us about Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. But the people and the environment going beyond the cold and probably hitting on some of the kindness. Well, you know the cold. And you fortunately got to know Dr. Fraley. Minnesota, when I went there in 1973, was just fabulous. Graduating from UCSD when I did, at that point in time, 
the way the school was structured. We were in the second class. There was no AOA. There's still no AOA. There's no class rank. At the time I went through, all exams were optional, pass-fail, and anonymous until the final exam, which you took, put your name on it. If you passed, that was it, and it got destroyed. So when it came time for us to apply for residencies, all we had to show for our years at UC San Diego were letters of recommendation and what people wrote about us after different clerkships, which really wasn't, couldn't stand up to credentials that other people had with regard to high passes, AOA, et cetera, et cetera, from more established medical schools. So when I interviewed for surgical residency, there was no place that seemed to be interested in me at all, except for Minnesota, because my mentor at Minnesota, under whom I did my research, because you had to do a thesis in order to graduate back then. So my mentor there, Eugene Bernstein, had come from the University of Minnesota and had alerted Henry Buckwald there that I might be worthwhile taking a look at. And so when I went to Minnesota, it was like, we'd love to have you come. I went, great. I mean, it's like, you know, I've got so many suitors, uh, <laughs> you know, where do I sign? And so Carol and I went off to Minnesota. It's the first time I'd ever, you know, the interview was the first time I'd ever been in Minnesota. Rotating internship. I had no interest in urology. Medical school, I avoided it like the plague because it just seemed so off-putting. But a rotating internship, and so I got to rotate on urology. In point of fact, I almost didn't rotate on urology because another intern called me before my urology rotation and said, you know, I'm interested in urology. Do you want to trade me for another rotation in the ER? I went, wow, that's great. I won't have to do this specialty that I'm not interested in. But he was so anxious to have that rotation on urology. I have to say, because of that, I said, no, I'm gonna, I'll rotate on urology. <laughs> and that's how I rotated on it. If he'd been less enthusiastic, I probably would have had another rotation in the ER and never seen urology. But I then rotated as an intern. Dr. Fraley was very, very smart. Interns scrubbed. First year residents did the scut work. So here I was as an intern scrubbing on all these amazing cases with Dr. Fraley. And who were the uh, residents? Paul Lang, Bill DeWolf, Dick Williams. It was an amazing time at the University of Minnesota. And uh, I had to give a talk at the American College of Surgeons on the research I did at San Diego on uh, intraortic balloon counterpulsation. And the boss expressed an interest. He said, well, why don't you present it at Grand Rounds? So I did. And it was just amazing. I mean, the feedback was just fabulous. And the bottom line is, when it came time then to decide what I wanted to do, I figured, yeah, I'm going to be a urologist. These people are wonderful. And the boss looked at me and said, well, I'm not going to take you as a resident unless you interview somewhere else. So I interviewed actually at UCLA with May Rest in Peace, Will Goodwin. Don Skinner was there. Jean DeCurian was there. And I went back to Minnesota. I said, fine, I did my interview. I want to do my residency with you. Life has many twists and turns, and it sounds like yeah. many of your turns have led to the right path. And uh, if we could, we'd certainly go back in time and thank that co-intern of yours for stimulating <laughs> the, the competitive impulse to, yes, I should try urology too. You mentioned Carol, and Carol is a special person. How did you meet, and what are the ingredients that flavor your relationship? Carol's a very special person. We met during my first year of medical school. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but 
my roommate at that time, Stan Amundsen, is just a probably one of the brightest interns I ever met. Stan, when he took his board, scored a perfect score. They decided that you can't score a perfect score, and they figured that he had to have cheated. So they had him take it again. He scored another perfect score. That's how bright Stan was. Everything he reads, he retains. So Stan was from the Midwest, and I went to St. Olaf. I came out of Grinnell. We were roommates together, and social life in San Diego was difficult. And uh, we figured one way we could begin to meet some young women was maybe if we ate in the undergraduate cafeteria, we would meet somebody who possibly would consider going out with a medical student. So you could buy script at 50 cents on the dollar there because every student who enrolled in UCSD got a certain amount of this script. Well, the women never used all their scripts, so they'd sell it at 50 cents on the dollar. Well, that gave you carte blanche to go through the woman's dorm knocking on doors where they said they were selling script, and you'd buy it at 50 cents on the dollar. Carol had some ad like that in the, in the newspaper, and I knocked on the door, and she answered it. And I can honestly tell you I decided right there and then that's a woman I wanted to marry just after she answered the door. That's ridiculous, but that's actually true. And it took me four years to graduate from medical school. And it took me four years to convince Carol that she might want to get engaged to me. And uh, it's been wonderful ever since. Well, that's a bit of a unique twist on the way to a man's heart is to through his stomach. <laughs> Getting back to the key ingredients, uh, what are the key ingredients that make it such a successful partnership? Just the sense that there's another individual who you feel you are so fortunate to be with who you really feel that you're really not even deserving of being with that person. And by the same token, that person does make you the very best version of yourself that you could ever hope to be. And there's no doubt that that person is always in your camp. And so when the world pummels you and you crawl home, you know there's somebody there that's going to then cradle you dust you off, get you back in shape, and help you get back into the fray. Uh, that's been true for almost 50 years now. We all change on the outside. We don't change on the inside. But trying to find that inner core is difficult. And this, I have no idea why an individual opening a door would all of a sudden have that impact on me. But no one ever did before, and no one ever has since. Ralph, innovation, what is the blend that makes success? You know, it's hard to know. It's just a wanting to do something that you think may be different, may be better. You know, what is success? You know, some people would say, well, success is your innovation comes to fruition. You make a lot of money, yada, yada, yada. You start a company and, you know, what have you. Success to me is just learning new things. So I'm almost as happy with our failures as I am with our quote-unquote successes because each one provides new knowledge. And sometimes what you think is a success turns out to be a failure as you continue to explore and you realize that what worked initially as you really hammer on it doesn't really work. So for me, it's just the freedom to think creatively, to look at problems and think about them in different ways and to have the humility or whatever to go, 
Well, we just don't know. And to realize that my idea isn't any better than the idea of an undergraduate in our research lab. And in point of fact, their idea might be better because they're not hampered by an excess amount of domain knowledge. What we suffer from is as we learn more and more, we get closer and closer to the knee of the elephant and we lose almost all perspective. So you, you really want to turn to your undergraduates, your medical students and say, well, here's the problem. What do you think? And sometimes they'll come up with a solution or something that is spot on, but totally radical. And then you just have to make sure that you have the ability to pursue it. And that's the beauty of the laboratory. So you have a lot of irons in the fire. It's important to have a lot of irons in the fire because at any point in time, 90% of those irons are cold. But what stimulates you and encourages to go on are the 10% that are, if you will, warm and occasionally absolutely red hot. Sometimes when you close your eyes, you get new perspective. When you close your eyes and envision the future of urologic surgery, what do you see? I think the necessity for a human being to cut another human being open in order to cure them is an admission of a technological failure of the society. So I see surgery as a very hurtful thing that needs to be changed, that needs to be eliminated. I know a lot of people would get upset with that statement, but that's the way I feel. And that's governed my whole career in urology with the concept of the goal is to relieve human suffering. And minimally invasive surgery helps to do that. Completely non-invasive surgery helps to do that even more. Medicine does that even more. So I don't know what's going to happen by any stretch, but I would hope that in short order, the need to basically put holes in the kidney to go after kidney stones would disappear, and we'd have the technology and ability to do all that ureteroscopically. And I would hope, as time goes by, we'd find the way to perhaps dissolve some of these stones, the way we're able to dissolve uric acid stones now. I mean, we have any number of patients, I'm sure like you do, that they come in, the Hounsfield units are 300, the pH of the urine is five. We think they have a uric acid stone, you put them on uracid K, you put them on allopurinol, and over several months, the stone disappears. Well, what's better than minimally invasive surgery? No surgery at all. We don't have that capabilities yet for calcium oxalate, monohydrate, and dihydrate. We don't have that ability yet for struvite. We don't have that ability yet for calcium phosphate or brushite. But my fervent hope is that people much younger than I am and much smarter than I am will eventually develop medication so that if you have one stone, you never have another one. So we'll see where that goes. But our whole laboratory right now is aimed at making the ureter the route to the kidney and totally eliminating the need to blow holes in the renal parenchyma. As you look back at your route, your career, are there things that you wish you'd known earlier? Or are there points in the path where you wish you'd deflected the other way? Uh, maybe a bunch of hubers to say no. But no, there's nothing I would change. There's just nothing I would change. I'd been incredibly fortunate to all along the way have mentors who were incredibly insightful and supportive, whether from high school, through college, through medical school, through residency. And right up to present day, you know, working uh, now for Jamie Ladman is great. 
we run the laboratory together. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. And we've had two of our fellows join us who've been wonderful, Roshan Patel and uh, Peng Bo Jiang. And even another former fellow, David Lee's come here to UCI to work and is doing all of his robotic prostatectomies here. So for me, this is like old home week. It's great fun. I'm having a blast. You look back, you know, sure. I wound up at Grinnell because I played the uh, college game very poorly, if you will, due to my naivete. What would have happened if I wound up going to a Yale or a Princeton or, or a Harvard or one of the Ivy League schools? I don't think I would have turned out the same. Don't know, but I doubt that I would have had the experiences that I had at Grinnell that gave me, that reinforced the concept that persistence will overcome almost all barriers. And that if what you want to do is something you want to do badly enough, the persistence will carry you through and you will do that thing. I don't know if I would have got that um, staying on the East Coast, but I certainly got that going to Grinnell. Do you feel you've struck the right balance between work and life? Very hard question to answer, Manoj. There's no doubt that the career takes the majority of your time. I think the key thing for me is that when you're home, you're home, and when you're at work, you're at work. And you don't bring your home to work, and you certainly shouldn't bring your work home. Your family needs to know that you're with them, and those times need to be well-defined. It's a matter of maybe to some extent managing expectations, but if you tell your wife or your family you're going to be home at 7, you're home at 7. And if indeed something happens where that's not going to happen, you call and let them know that something has happened and you're not going to be home till 7. You don't tell them you're going to be home at 7 and then show up at 8. That dog won't hunt. And you need to take your vacations. And those vacations need to be with your family. The vacations are essential, not only as part of your family, but also, quite honestly, professionally, because that's when you have the opportunity to just totally relax. And some of your best ideas are going to happen not in your office and not in your OR. They're going to happen on a ski slope. They're going to happen while you're watching a sunset. And all of a sudden, that muse is going to come and land on your shoulder, and the answer is there. Balancing expectations is key. What is the quality you most like in a friend? It's not a quality. It's just a feeling. It's a feeling that you're in the room with another individual who you fervently believe, who you absolutely know is your friend, has your back, gives you good advice, has your best interests at heart, that you can rely on that 100%, that you know that if the chips were down, this is a person who would come to your, to your aid. If you have one or two people like that in your life, you're incredibly blessed. I've had a, a fair number of good friends, but you know my best friend of all time was Dick Williams, who unfortunately has as I say, left the party too soon. You know, it, my brothers are my friends, but family don't count as a rule, quote unquote. Uh, my brothers are just fabulous. But Dick was just my most special friend. I have a lot of other people that I have are very close to me as friends. Jamie's a friend. Elspeth McDougall's a close friend. Lou Cavusi, Art Smith, Paul Lang are all close friends. Dick was just really special. 
Well, Ralph, for many of us, you're really special too. Your perseverance, fortitude, and strive for excellence that now we know where it comes from has really shaped urology. But more importantly, the friendship and mentorship that you extend to all of us is invaluable. So on behalf of the urologic community, thank you not only for what you've done, but also for sharing a little bit more of yourself today. Thank you, Manoj. It's fun to reminisce a bit. And I appreciate speaking with you. And as you know, I hold you in the highest regard. And one of my fondest memories is your kindness to Dr. Fraley and uh, what you did for him. Ralph kindness, I think, is the central thing in our lives. And with that, I'd like to thank our audience for kindly taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.